This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On September 1st, 1935, as the clock struck 1 p.m., the street underneath the Federal House of Detention was bustling as usual. Taxis zoomed by, newspapermen and pedestrians bustled back and forth, going through the motions of their daily routine. No one took any notice of the window washer slowly working his way down the side of the detention center. Whenever a pedestrian happened to glance upward, the man paused, wiping a window theatrically until the passerby turned away. If they looked close enough, they might have noticed that the man was hanging onto a rope made of old knotted sheets, hardly proper equipment for a man in his precarious position. Suddenly, while he was still a couple of stories from the ground, the makeshift rope slipped. The washer careened toward the pavement. Panicking, he grabbed at the bars of the windows, balancing precariously as the rope steadied itself. The near miss drew a crowd. As the window washer slowly lowered himself down to the street, there were a few claps and cheers from the interested pedestrians. The washer gave the crowd a smile and a bow, then, without skipping a beat, slipped into a side alley and disappeared. As he did so, a member of the crowd realized what building the washer had come from. He rushed to the gate of the detention center, banged on the cold iron bars and shouted for the guards. A prisoner, the con artist Victor Lustig, had just escaped. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we discussed Victor Lustig, a European con artist who got his start hustling passengers on transatlantic liners before staging more elaborate cons throughout the United States. When the police started closing in on him, Lustig escaped to Paris, where he successfully pulled off his most ambitious con, selling the Eiffel Tower twice. This week, we'll see how Lustig's con work put him in the crosshairs of police all over the United States after taking advantage of the wrong mark. We'll also talk about how the Great Depression forced Lustig to think outside the box and how his counterfeiting enterprise threatened to topple the already fragile American economy. In 1925, 35-year-old Victor Lustig was living large. His latest con in Paris, selling the Eiffel Tower, had brought in 100,000 francs with the help of his partner, dapper Dan Collins. He returned to the United States that fall with enough money to keep him comfortable for a long while. But Lustig wasn't interested in simply being comfortable. In his years of conning innocent businessmen, he had developed a taste for high-end hotels, designer clothing, five-star dinners, and the company of the elite. These expensive habits added up. Regardless of how much money Lustig made in each con, he was always strapped for cash before long. When he didn't have time to stage a full con, Lustig fell back on easier tricks, such as the Romanian money box. This con didn't require a lot of elaborate setup. Instead, all Lustig needed was to find the perfect mark. That is, someone who is in desperate need to make money quickly. Lustig had several wooden boxes made with a slot on either end. He told his marks that the box could reproduce any form of currency that was inserted, but the process took six hours. He would make sure the first demonstration went off without a hitch, making it seem as if the box had successfully replicated a bill. In awe, Lustig's mark would purchase the box for a huge fee, though, of course, Six hours later, when Lustig was gone, the box would fail to print any further bills. But when he had the time and the cash on hand, Lustig preferred to think big in his schemes. And one of his biggest, boldest marks was none other than America's most famous gangster at the time, Al Capone. Capone had risen among the ranks of the Chicago underworld after Prohibition went into effect, and in 1925, he took over as the crime czar of the Windy City. His gang was involved in all things illegal, gambling, prostitution, and bootlegging, as well as violently running down rival gangs when they got too ambitious. Capone himself had a reputation as an especially dangerous gangster. 
it was well known that those who crossed Capone weren't given the opportunity to do so again. But Lustig found the idea of tricking Capone irresistible, despite the risks. Lustig's instinct to constantly seek out new challenges and to pull off longer, more complicated cons was indicative of him having a novelty-seeking personality. People with this personality trait tend to seek out more stimulation, make more impulsive decisions, and go to greater lengths to pursue rewards. A 2001 study published by Rick Bevins, a psychology professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, showed that people with novelty-seeking personalities are also more prone to high-risk behavior. In their minds, there is a higher reward for accomplishing a high-risk task, and the reward gives their brain a boost of dopamine, further encouraging the behavior. The elaborate nature of Lustig's cons are consistent with that of a novelty-seeking personality. His decision to make a mark out of Capone would have been seen as suicidal by his fellow con artists. Lustig dove headfirst into planning. In early 1926, 36-year-old Lustig approached Capone's henchmen with the intention of setting a meeting with the crime boss himself. Once again, he presented himself as a count, with lots of disposable income and connections in high places. He had a business proposition for Capone, but one that could only be discussed in person. Capone's underlings were naturally hesitant, but eventually, Capone agreed to a meeting with the mysterious Count Lustig. He pitched Capone on a potential business opportunity that was guaranteed to turn a profit. He remained vague about the details of the proposition, instead choosing to detail his confidence. Lustig had a feeling that Capone invested in people, not businesses. Capone's reputation drove off anyone who might try to double-cross the gangster, and the wealth he'd amassed proved that Capone had a knack for identifying successful people. Lustig's instinct proved correct. At the end of his pitch, Capone's only question was how much money Lustig needed for his venture. Lustig asked for $50,000, over $700,000 today. Capone's only stipulation was that he returned the loan in 60 days. Capone didn't need to remind Lustig what would happen if he failed to deliver on his promise. But the 60-day timeline came and went, and Lustig never showed up. Capone was furious. He sent his men out to scour the streets of Chicago for the missing count. They found Lustig in a bar frequented by Capone's henchmen, drinking without a care in the world. Capone's men hauled Lustig in front of the boss, whose fury was palpable. Capone had given Lustig more than just his money. He'd given him his trust. And in his eyes, Lustig had taken it and thrown it back in Capone's face. As Capone glowered at Lustig, the onlookers glanced at one another knowingly. There was no way Lustig was walking out of that room. 
Capone was about to give his goons the order when Lustig pulled out a wad of cash, all $50,000 Capone had loaned him. He explained that the business proposition had gone sour, and the reason for his delay in returning the cash was simple. Lustig had been scrambling to try and turn some kind of profit for the gangster. Capone was so impressed with Lustig's honesty, or rather his appearance of honesty, that he gave Lustig $5,000 and his blessing to keep operating in Chicago. Capone never realized that Lustig had made up the whole story. There was no business venture and no deal that had gone sideways. Instead, Lustig had taken the money to a Chicago bank and kept it there, untouched, for the two months. All Lustig had wanted out of the con was Capone's personal blessing and the knowledge that he had conned one of the world's most dangerous men. But Lustig's stream of scamming successes came to an abrupt end in the fall of 1926. The 36-year-old con man traveled to Havana, Cuba, with a young woman named Estelle Sweeney. As always, he didn't know exactly who his mark was, but he had all the ingredients for another grade A scam. Estelle Sweeney was an aspiring actress who had moved to Hollywood from the Midwest. She had no experience, no connections, and no prospects. All she had was hope. Lustig convinced her to come with him to Havana with a promise that he would make her famous. He set her up in one of the most elite hotels in the city, making sure the staff all knew that he was a top Broadway producer. The stage was set. All that was left was for Lustig to find his mark. It didn't take long for him to choose his target. Ronald Dodge, a wealthy businessman from Providence, Rhode Island, who had clearly become bored with his everyday work and was looking for a new challenge. Dodge was successful, but longed for something more creatively fulfilling. As he later explained to Lustig, Dodge had early ambitions of becoming a producer himself, but the enterprise proved more difficult than he'd expected. He put his dreams on hold for years to focus on his business, until he happened to run into a charismatic theater producer and a charming actress while on vacation in Havana. Lustig was careful to let Dodge approach him. As with his other cons, he knew the power of withholding from his marks. When Dodge finally came to him, Lustig admitted that he was in the process of putting together a new production with Sweeney as the star. As he talked, Lustig emphasized the pains associated with being a Broadway producer, the struggles and efforts of organizing a whole company, dealing with so many creative types and raising enough funds to put on a show. He explained to Dodge that he was still $50,000 short of his fundraising goal. But disguised within those complaints was the story of a man who was completely in charge of executing a creative vision. And Dodge was eager to become one of those men. He begged Lustig to let him in on the show, offering to help finance the production. 
Lustig was cautious. He admitted that he was looking for investors, but as he explained to Dodge, he wasn't interested in giving up majority control. He would only accept Dodge's money if it was equal to the money he could raise himself. This was a tactic to throw off suspicion. If he had accepted Dodge's offer outright, he might have become suspicious and backed out. But by feigning reluctance and qualifying their business arrangement, the deal felt more real. Even once Dodge was completely hooked, Lustig kept him at arm's length. He wouldn't finish the deal in Havana. Instead, he promised to visit Dodge back in Providence, Rhode Island, when he had his own half of the money lined up. This tactic was called the Titan Up. Essentially, the con artist sends the mark away without sealing the deal. This made Dodge even more eager to invest because in that time, he worried that he might have lost out on the opportunity. So when Lustig finally came calling three weeks later, Dodge didn't hesitate to plunk down his cash. When Lustig showed Dodge the $36,000 he'd raised, Dodge eagerly handed Lustig a suitcase with $34,000 in cash. More than enough to make the show a reality. The two men went to a speakeasy to close the deal and toast their new friendship. Dodge started hashing out details for a trip to New York for the first rehearsals, which Lustig encouraged. Then, as the next round of drinks came, Lustig was called away by a telegram in London. Dodge waited patiently for his new friend to return, sipping on his cocktail as the minutes ticked away. It took 30 minutes for Dodge to realize what had happened. He'd been scammed. He chased after Lustig, but the con artist was long gone, along with all of Dodge's money. Unlike most of Lustig's marks, who were too embarrassed to admit they'd been scammed, Dodge's fury was enough to drive him to the police immediately to report the con man. Dodge was so livid at being taken advantage of, he wasn't going to stop chasing Victor Lustig until he got his revenge. Coming up next, Victor Lustig struggles to stay ahead of the authorities as the stock market crash looms over the United States. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By the end of 1926, 36-year-old Victor Lustig was proving to be one of the world's most adept scam artists. He had successfully conned Al Capone and earned his way into the gangster's good graces. Lustig happily made his living swindling people throughout America, skipping town the minute the jig was up. But one 
miscalculation now had grave consequences for his future. A disgruntled Mark, Ronald Dodge, had sworn vengeance on the infamous con artist after Lustig stole $34,000 from him. Lustig quickly fled the country for Paris, the Providence, Rhode Island police hot on his tail. But by May of 1927, the 37-year-old was desperate to leave Paris and return to the fertile shores of America. However, Lustig knew that if he traveled to the States, his name would appear on the passenger manifest, alerting the authorities. He knew that the moment he stepped off the boat, the police would arrest him and return him to Providence to serve justice. But halfway across the Atlantic, Lustig had a revelation. If he could somehow avoid being intercepted by the New York police, he could slip back into the country unnoticed. And a surefire way to avoid the NYPD was to be arrested by another, higher authority. Lustig called the Secret Service, promising them information on some of the criminals he used to work for. Big names that the service had been after for years. He arranged for the agents to meet him on the ocean liner before the ship even docked. And because the federal authority of the Secret Service superseded the NYPD, they escorted Lustig past customs directly into an interrogation room. There, they questioned him for six hours. But in that time, Lustig didn't offer anything of use to the agents. If he had knowledge of criminal activity, he couldn't remember the names or locations. And if he had names, he wasn't able to connect them to active cases that the federal agents cared about. The questioning went nowhere, only frustrating and exhausting the agents. But they couldn't hold him because he hadn't broken any federal laws. They were unaware of the other warrants out for his arrest. So, eventually, the agents let Lustig go. As a result, he walked away from the Secret Service a free man, ready to begin conning again. Once again, let loose on American soil, he continued coming up with elaborate cons for individual marks, but also had his Romanian money box on standby whenever he needed to make a quick buck. Victor Lustig's success rate was largely due to the personal standards to which he held himself. In fact, he created a list of commandments, which were known as the Ten Commandments for Con Men. These included, never look bored, never get drunk, never be untidy, and never boast. Let your importance be quietly obvious. But despite these commandments, which had been so crucial to some of his earlier successes, Lustig now found himself getting caught more and more frequently. Word was spreading about the famous conman. It was bad for business. Between 1927 and 1928, Lustig was arrested more than a dozen times, but he was able to talk his way out of each rap sheet. And on the occasions when he couldn't, the prosecutors found that they didn't have enough evidence to hold him anyway. Each time Lustig escaped a close call, he would take off to Paris. 
until his trail went cold and he felt comfortable enough to return to the States. But in 1928, even Paris became interested in the conman's movements. Lustig went abroad with the intention of selling fake bonds, but Parisian detectives, acting on a tip, found him in his hotel room. Lustig, thinking quickly, explained that he was part of Al Capone's gang and that he had no intention of committing any criminal activity in France. Paris was merely a stopping point en route to his final destination, Germany. But even Lustig's smooth talking had its limits, and the Parisian detectives decided to confirm his story with the American government. Their inquiry reached the Providence police force, who were still actively looking for Lustig. They demanded that Lustig be held in Paris until they could come to extradite him themselves. Ronald Dodge personally accompanied the Providence officers so he could positively identify the con artist. Lustig was put in handcuffs and forced to return to Rhode Island, where he would be put on trial. With Lustig in custody, Dodge and the prosecutors now set about looking for witnesses to confirm Dodge's story. All they had was Dodge's word against Lustig's, which wasn't enough to build a case on. While they were looking for witnesses, though, Lustig applied for bail. And as soon as Lustig was released, he skipped town and headed for the Mexican border. The Providence police chased him down once again, but Lustig managed to convince a judge in Texas to protect him from harassment by the Rhode Island Police Department. Lustig was allowed to stay in Texas for a year while the case was formed against him. In March of 1929, Lustig was arrested in Texas. The 39-year-old conman was in the middle of selling fake bonds to a rich banker when the mark caught on to the fact that something about the deal was fishy. He went to a man we'll call S. Robinson, the county sheriff and treasurer, and demanded that Lustig be arrested. Lustig was in a bind. He had been arrested in possession of the counterfeit bonds, which was tangible evidence against him, something he was careful never to leave behind. And if word of his arrest got out, he knew that it wouldn't be long before Ronald Dodge caught up to him once again. But instead of panicking, Lustig tried to see if he could make a mark out of Sheriff Robinson. He took his time to befriend the sheriff and get to know him better. He asked about his family, his friends, and his daily life, all questions that seemed innocent enough from the get-go. Lustig finally made some headway when Robinson revealed a penchant for partying. He confessed to spending lots of time in New Orleans, drinking on Bourbon Street and setting up a love nest for himself. Lustig encouraged Robinson with similar stories of his own, about Parisian bordellos he would frequent and fets that would last through the night. Once Lustig got Robinson talking, it wasn't hard to get him to reveal more of his secrets. And before long, Robinson confessed that he was funding his New Orleans party sprees with money stolen from the county treasury. Thus far, he'd taken $25,000, over $350,000 in today's money. 
This was all the information Lustig needed to make Robinson a culpable mark. Cautiously, he told the sheriff about the Romanian box and how he discovered a way to replicate any American currency. Robinson's interest was immediately piqued. Lustig told him where he was keeping the box and asked Robinson to bring it to the prison so he could show him how it worked. Robinson did as Lustig told him and marveled as he watched the box print an exact $1,000 bill. Of course, the copied bill was a plant that Lustig had inserted earlier. He altered the serial numbers slightly to make it match the bill he copied from his wallet. After the demonstration, Robinson was thoroughly convinced by the machine and begged Lustig for it. Lustig reluctantly agreed to part with it for $10,000 and his freedom. Robinson agreed, and Lustig once again escaped into the wind. But six months later, Robinson showed up on Lustig's doorstep, demanding his money back and brandishing a gun. Lustig didn't bother asking how Robinson managed to track him down. Instead, he calmly asked Robinson if he was operating the machinery correctly. Lustig talked Robinson off the ledge by confusing him in his own self-righteousness. Then, after promising to come back to Texas and show him how to operate the machine properly, he gave Robinson $10,000 in cash and told him to have fun. Of course, Lustig failed to mention that the money he'd given Robinson was all counterfeit. Four days later, the papers reported on the Texas sheriff's arrest. He'd been caught with several counterfeit $100 bills and sentenced to prison in Pennsylvania. After Sheriff Robinson was able to track him down, Lustig realized that his cons were drawing too much heat. With the Providence police actively looking for him throughout the country, it was getting harder and harder to escape unwanted attention. More importantly, with the stock market crash in October of 1929, Lustig found that people were far more cautious with their money. There was less disposable income floating around and, therefore, less for Lustig to steal. He realized that for his next move, he would need to come up with something more sustainable and less detectable. Instead of stealing from the American people, Lustig decided to steal from the American government. Coming up next, Lustig's most successful scheme makes him America's most wanted, launching a months-long investigation into the con artist. Now back to the story. By 1929, 39-year-old Victor Lustig was struggling to stay out of the hands of the authorities. His former mark, Ronald Dodge, was spearheading a manhunt against him after Lustig stole $34,000. And with people's disposable income drying up after the stock market crash, Lustig settled on a new mark, the United States government. Lustig enlisted the help of an accomplished engraver, William Watts. He was a forger who used to run with Capone in Chicago. Lustig paired Watts up with a chemist, 
Tom Shaw to create realistic counterfeit bills. They were so skillfully made, they couldn't be differentiated from real money unless they were looked at by experts. Watts engraved copper plates with the design of the bill, while Shaw created a solution that would mirror the chemicals used in American currency. Lustig's role was to push the bills into circulation. The operation was kept highly secret, and over the next five years, the three men grew rich as they pushed more of their counterfeit bills into circulation. By 1934, $100,000 worth of Lustig's bills were being caught by federal treasuries every month. It represented a huge percentage of the counterfeit bills in circulation. Once the extent of Lustig's operation was revealed, the federal government went on red alert. The quality of the counterfeits had allowed them to slip under the radar for years. If the extent of the extra currency was discovered, it would devalue the real money in circulation. And with the economy in such a fragile place, this reveal could easily lead to another stock market crash. A squad of Secret Service agents was assembled in 1934 to locate the counterfeit plates and take them out of commission. At first, they had no clue who was responsible for the fake money. But within a matter of weeks, they were able to trace the quality of the engraving to William Watts, Capone's former forger. But Watts had gone underground fearing for his own safety. After the stock market crash, counterfeiters and quality engravers were in high demand. And there were terrifying stories of those skilled individuals being kidnapped, forced to create fake money, and then murdered so the crime couldn't be traced back to them. The only lead that the agents had on Watts was an old friendship with a known con artist, Victor Lustig now 44 years old. The Secret Service hadn't forgotten how Lustig used them to get into the country seven years earlier, and they were eager to bring him in for questioning. Even if he wasn't directly connected to the Watts counterfeits, it would be fun to make Lustig squirm. They plastered his face over every police station in America, making him a number one priority for United States law enforcement. Accounts differ as to how the Secret Service was finally able to find Lustig. Several sources state that Lustig's mistress discovered that he was cheating on her with chemist Tom Shaw's mistress. When she realized that Lustig was wanted by the police, she turned him over to the authorities without another thought. But the Secret Service tells another story. In The Man Who Sold the Eiffel Tower, a first-hand account of Lustig's exploits written by one of the agents who went after him, the trail on Lustig was stone-cold by the end of 1934. Lustig has stayed out of the way of any police records, but the Secret Service had some old contacts of his. One Hannah Smith formerly owned a brothel in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where she had once crossed paths with Lustig. In 1935, the Secret Service was finally able to track Hannah Smith to an address in New York City. 
They authorized a wiretap on her phone and spent several months listening to all her conversations. Just as their patience was running out, Lustig called Hannah Smith in the fall of 1935 looking to set up a meeting with her. The agents caught him as he was coming out of her apartment building and brought him in for questioning. It was Lustig's 47th arrest at the age of 45. Time had not changed Lustig's mannerisms at all. He was just as helpful and kind to agents as he was coming off the transatlantic liner in 1927. At first, Lustig claimed not to know anything about counterfeiting. But after 12 hours of questioning, even his mask started to crack. The Secret Service had all of his aliases, intelligence on his counterfeiting operation, and enough evidence to send him to jail for at least several years. Realizing that he was running out of options, Lustig tried to cut a deal with the agents. He offered to hand over the counterfeit printing plates in exchange for his immunity. The Secret Service reluctantly agreed, and Lustig made a call to a trusted friend, Dapper Dan Collins, Lustig's one-time partner in Paris. Collins retrieved a key for Lustig and the agents, which was linked to a locker in a Times Square subway station. When opened, the agents found $51,000 in counterfeit bills, as well as counterfeit plates for $10, $20, and $100 bills. But the plates weren't the high-quality engravings that had sent the Secret Service scrambling in the first place. It was a decoy that Lustig had set up in case he'd ever gotten caught. Unluckily for Lustig, the agents figured out pretty quickly they were being conned. They locked him in the Federal House of Detention on West Street for several weeks under charges of conspiracy and possession, while they continued the search for William Watts and the real counterfeiting materials. Without the real plates, they couldn't charge Lustig for his role in the counterfeiting operation. Lustig was furious. He claimed that the Secret Service reneged on their deal with him and that he knew nothing about the counterfeiting operation they were booking him with. But while Lustig was in jail, the flow of counterfeit bills slowed, making Lustig's arguments weaker and emptier. He grew desperate. On September 1st, 1935, the day before Lustig was supposed to stand trial, he pleaded with the guards to be excused from his daily exercise time. He explained that he wasn't feeling well. The guards, taking pity on him, allowed him to remain in his cell unguarded. When he had the floor to himself, Lustig pulled out the makeshift rope he'd fashioned from bedsheets. He unlocked the door to his cell with a spare key, no doubt given to him by one of the guards he'd befriended. Michelle Deitch, an expert in prison culture, has often called prisons a microcosm of society, meaning that inmates and guards often get to know one another and talk. Because of this, when desperate prisoners are looking to escape from prison, they often enlist guards to help them. In fact, most prison breaks have four ingredients that appear over and over again. The first is the environment. 
That is, an environment where prisoners and prison staff are allowed to develop a relationship. The second is the clever inmate, or prisoners who are smart enough to manipulate the guards over to their side. Lustig had spent his entire life developing this ability. Next is the perfect insider, an empathetic or a weak employee. It's unclear who exactly helped Lustig escape, but whoever he or she was, it was undoubtedly someone that Lustig exploited, much like he exploited Sheriff Robinson in the Texas jail. Last comes the manipulation, where Lustig managed to get the key to his jail cell, undoubtedly in exchange for some favor that he reneged on. Once free from his cell, Lustig climbed out of the window at the end of the hallway, posing as a window washer. And in full view of New York City, he scaled down the side of the building and disappeared into the city streets. But even with Lustig's escape, the Secret Service was able to catch a lucky break. The engraver, William Watts, was finally found he had been hiding in an apartment in New Jersey. When they arrested him, they found all the evidence of the counterfeiting operation Watts and Lustig had been running for years. Shortly afterwards, police located Lustig in Pittsburgh. This time, the manhunt was decidedly less dramatic. An anonymous tip to the hotline that the Secret Service set up ended up being correct, and Lustig was back in prison less than a month after his daring escape. The two men were put on trial on December 5th, 1935. At the time that their case was heard, they had created close to $1,340,000 worth of counterfeit bills, over $25 million today. In a bid to lessen his time in jail, Watts made a deal with the prosecution and served as their star witness. In a surprisingly self-defeatist move, Lustig pleaded guilty to all charges. He had no moves left to play, and he knew it. 45-year-old Lustig was sentenced to 15 years for the counterfeiting scheme and an additional five years for his escape from federal prison. He spent the rest of his days in Alcatraz prison where his former friend in crime, Al Capone, was already serving time. Ironically, after so many near misses and escapes, Lustig had finally ended up in a prison that was considered inescapable. About halfway through his sentence in 1947, Victor Lustig contracted pneumonia. On March 9, 1947, he was sent to the medical center for federal prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. He died there two days later at age 57. On his death certificate, his profession was listed as salesman. To this day, Victor Lustig is known as one of the most clever and imaginative con artists to operate in America. He often posed as a friend, allowing people to come to him with their problems and presenting himself as a solution. Had things gone differently, Lustig could have been a renowned therapist or marketer. But instead, he chose to be a scammer, using his empathetic ear to steal the lives 
of strangers. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Victor Lustig, among the many sources we used, we found The Man Who Sold the Eiffel Tower by James Johnson extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Joel Stein. This episode of Con Artists was written by Liz Dorovitsyn, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Hold up. 